Hi, everyone, and welcome to Remaking Tomorrow, a series of conversations about the future of teaching and learning. I'm Ryan Rodzeski, here with Greg Baer, and we're the co-authors of When You Wonder, You're Learning, Mr. Rogers' Enduring Lessons for Raising Creative, Curious, Caring Kids. This is a podcast powered by Remake Learning, a network that ignites engaging, relevant, and equitable learning in support of young people navigating rapid social and technological change. On today's episode, we're talking with Emily Oster, a professor of economics at Brown University and the author of several books, including Crib Sheet, Expecting Better, and most recently, The Family Firm, a data-driven guide to better decision-making in the early school years. She also writes Parent Data, a popular Substack newsletter about pregnancy, parenting, and more. Time Magazine ranked her among the world's 100 most influential people in 2022. Emily, welcome to Remaking Tomorrow. Thank you so much for having me. Emily, so I first heard your name in October 2020 when you published an article in The Atlantic arguing that according to the data you'd collected, schools maybe weren't the COVID-19 super spreaders that so many of us feared that they would be, and that perhaps the cost of prolonged school closures may, in some cases, have outweighed the risk of the virus. And at first, Emily, the online blowback to that was pretty intense. Were you nervous about publishing that piece? It's interesting because I think one of the features of my personal psyche that allows me to do many things like this is that I rarely anticipate the blowback that I'm going to get. So I understood that this was a topic that people had very strong feelings about, but I don't think that I had anticipated quite how people would react, quite how strongly they would react. And frankly, I don't think I anticipated quite how many people would read that and respond to it and talk about using it in terms of policy. So I was in some ways surprised. And Emily, so much of your work is about looking to data to figure out whether the things we believe are really as true as they seem. And when those numbers don't track with what we perceive to be true, that can be concerning, even scary for us. As someone who works with and communicates data, having experienced that blowback, how do you anticipate and even try to mitigate that initial negative reaction? The most difficult thing about trying to convince people with data is the way that anecdote pulls us in. So, so frequently when we interact with the world, we are seeing anecdote. We are seeing what is happening to someone we know or to someone we heard about or a friend of a friend or this was a thing on Facebook. And that's really salient. And so when you try to convince people with data, a lot of times what you're saying is, well, yeah, that's a salient anecdote, but actually if you step back to all of the pieces of data, the things you're not hearing about, you see a different picture. And the schools was an example of that where when you looked at the media coverage of what was happening with COVID in schools, you would get a story about, you know, here's a school that had a COVID case, or here's a school where they had to close because of a concern about exposure, or here's a school even that had a few COVID cases. What I was trying to do with data was say, well, now I've looked at many schools. And in fact, the overall pattern is not what you might think from this available anecdote. That's really hard because it's not the way most of us are used to interacting with facts. Was there a moment in your own life when this first happened to you, you know, when the data conflicted with the anecdotes you were seeing, a moment maybe when data surprised you or, or shocked you or made you think differently about the world? I think data often makes me think differently uh, about the world. When I was pregnant with my daughter, it was really sort of the first time that I had spent a lot of time doing things 
with the data in service of my personal life. So using the sort of tools from my research to try to answer questions that I cared about from a health standpoint. And that was a place where there were things that came out of the data that I did find surprising. So an example is I had known a lot of people who went on bed rest and then went on to have full-term babies who it seemed from the kind of anecdotal experience, like maybe that was effective because you see they did this thing and then this other thing happened. But when you dive into data on that, what you learn is actually there's really no evidence that bed rest is effective at preventing early birth. And part of why we're drawn to the idea that it might be is that we see all this positive evidence in favor of it. But of course, if you follow the control people who aren't put on bed rest, you see the same outcome. So that was a place where I was like, huh, I guess I'm subject to my own biases I complain about from other people are also in my head. Emily, you're an economist and you've studied everything from HIV transmission to Huntington's disease. What is it that sparked an interest in economics in your life? And what sparked an interest in studying pregnancy and parenting through that economic lens? So my parents are both economists, which I say partly to provide a little context for how weird I am, uh, and and partly (laughs) to just really credit them with my interest in economics, but also even more than that with my feeling that the tools that we use in economics are useful more broadly. And my mom passed away. I mean, I think about her all the time in general, but I think about her all the time in the context of these kind of questions because she was a really talented economist. But more than that, she had such an intuitive sense for the value of decision-making and data in our family life. And so many of the things that we did as kids were like influenced by the idea of these basic economic principles. So there's a story that I tell sometimes about groceries where, you know, my mother figured out in the 1980s how to get our groceries delivered. And so this was not like the era of Amazon Prime. Like my parents had to write out this list and then they would fax it to the like local grocery store and the grocery store would like deliver these things. And they went through all of this stuff to get this to happen. And I thought it was crazy. And also I felt very angry that I couldn't go to the grocery store because I heard that was very fun. (laughs) Uh, And that, you know, you get all kinds of needs, just seemed like a great experience, so novel. And I remember asking my mother at some point, like, you know, why don't we go to the grocery store, like regular, normal household? And she said, well, you know, I have a very high opportunity cost of time. And, you know, but she said it was the kind of thing my mother would say, not in a like, haha, I'm joking, but like, literally, that was the answer. It was like, that's why. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah, I guess I can, I can see that. I'd still like to go to the grocery store, though. You know, she really sort of lived that. And I think that when I came to my own personal life and parenting and pregnancy, just this idea that, okay, we have this set of tools and they are useful beyond our paper writing was really ingrained. Can you give us a sense of how else can data complicate or even contradict some of the things that we've all come to believe about raising kids? So you're a parent yourself. Are there other things you've done differently as a result of your own research that maybe you wouldn't have done otherwise? I try very hard in in my parenting to be sort of responsive to data. I think one place where the choices that we make are sort of really influenced by evidence is in kids' sleep. So our family takes what I view as like quite a militant approach to sleep, which is we've decided that there's an amount of sleep that each of our kids needs and we really prioritize it, like to the exclusion of other after-school activities, other sports, other social activities in some cases. So I think we really sort of try to protect that time. And a lot of the reason for that is that I've spent a lot of time reading the research on sleep and have come to think that, you know, sleep is one of the things that we undervalue for kids. 
even if it meant, you know, not finishing your homework some of the time, it might still be appropriate to go to sleep. So that's something where the data, I think, really drives a lot of the choices that we make. This is Greg Baer, along with Ryan Rudzeski. We're talking with Emily Oster, a professor of economics at Brown and the author of several books, including Crib Sheet, Expecting Better, and The Family Firm. Emily, you also write a newsletter on Substack called Parent Data. It's about the data surrounding parenting and pregnancy, and it covers a lot of ground. You've written posts on everything from wildfires and pregnancy to vaccines and car seats. It's hugely popular, one of the most read newsletters on the entire Substack site. Why do you think there's such a craving for this among parents? My sense is that parents want to do it right. They want to do a good job because they love their kids. And it is increasingly the case in modern society, I think that we both have kind of an interest in using data to make choices, but also a lot of anxiety around parenting. And I think part of what appeals to the people who read both my books, but then to a large extent, the Substack newsletter, is that I think the tone is a combination of here's some data you can use to make your decisions better, but also try not to think about it so much that actually like a lot of the choices that we make in parenting or a lot of the situations we face in parenting, there are many good choices and the data can help you make those choices. But it isn't the case that if you don't teach your kid to read when they're three, that you're doing it wrong and sending them to a kind of low outcome in some unspecified way. So that kind of anxiety dialing down has become one of the hallmarks of parent data. And it's partly why I think it was appealing to a lot of people during COVID when I grew this following quite a lot. So you've talked about data being a potentially humanizing force. And I think that's such an interesting way of thinking about data because on the surface, data seems like it would be the opposite, right? That a faceless set of numbers could obscure us as individuals and reduce us to averages and outliers and trends. How can data help humanize us? Data can humanize us in almost taking some of the emotion out of it. So when we are interacting with these high stress activities or high stress choices without relying on some touchstone, some fact, it is very easy for emotions to run really high and for people to kind of really end up in corners where they can't find any common ground. But my sense is a lot of the value of evidence is to just bring people back to the center and say, okay, you know, here are some facts that maybe we can agree on. And now we can, if we need to resolve this disagreement, at least we have something to start with. So I think that's a sense in which for a lot of people, data can be yeah, humanizing, relaxing is probably the word I would use more frequently, which also I think many people would say, well, I don't really find data relaxing, but I think data is very relaxing. So let's turn back to The Atlantic. That publication recently released another article about school closures, this one by a different economist, Thomas Kane of Harvard University. And in that piece, Kane wrote this, the achievement loss is far greater than most educators and parents seem to realize. Adults are free to disagree about whether school closures were justified or a mistake. But either way, children should not be stuck with a bill for a public health measure taken on everyone's behalf. Emily, you yourself have studied this. What do the data say about the pandemic's academic impact? What stands out for you? So the academic impact was bad. There are very large drops in test scores between 2019 and 2021 when we look either at state tests, which we've looked at, or when we look at more sort of national tests run that Tom Kane has studied more. And more or less any way you look at it, there have been very large learning losses. 
in general, those learning losses seem to be larger in math than in reading. And, you know, a notable fact is that they are larger in places where school was more remote over the 2020-2021 school year. Um, if you look across the country, there's really very, very wide variation in the experience that students had over that school year, ranging from school districts that were open more or less normally in person for the entire year all the way down to school districts that never opened for in-person learning for that whole school year. So without sort of saying that somebody did it right or somebody did it wrong, what we can say is that the learning losses were much, much larger in the places that were closed, in the places that were open. And you know, one of the things we see in our data that I think is, is a sort of compelling causal argument is that if you compare districts that are physically quite close, many other aspects of their pandemic experience would have been quite similar. So labor market effects, how much COVID there was, those kind of things, other restrictions. If you compare those districts and one of them was open and one of them was not, you see again, these very large differences in learning loss. So it, it seems like those are probably a result of the differences in schooling mode. An additional fact that I think is worth noting when we talk about this is there are enormous equity impacts here. So it is both the case that students of color, black students in particular, were less likely to have access to in-person schooling and also the case that the learning losses associated with that lack of access to in-person schooling are larger for students of color. So there's almost a, a sort of double negative there that they're less likely to be in person and more likely to have losses associated with not being in person. So those are equity issues I think we'll be grappling with for many years. Emily, there's concern among educators and among families that in our efforts to help kids recover from losses of such a magnitude that we might overemphasize testing and the drilling of facts and all these things that kids tend not to like about school at the expense of all these other things that we know are just as important. Play, creativity, social emotional learning, wonder, and so on. And I'm curious from your perspective, as school systems plan for a post-pandemic future, are there ways that they might use data to humanize kids or to use your other word, to help kids relax as we help them recover from these losses? It's an interesting question. I think in general, school districts vary in their comfort using data. There are data resources that I think can help guide how we do this recovery. So to give you an example, Zern, which is a, a nonprofit that does math education in a lot of schools, has sort of thought about studying, okay, well, how do we help kids catch up, given that they're behind in a way that is, it is kind of not punitive, and that doesn't feel like we're just drilling and drilling and drilling more things. And one of the things that they uncovered through data and doing their research is that, in fact, kids seem to move forward more quickly or learn better if you just kind of move them forward and then try to backfill the information that they missed rather than, say, making fifth graders repeat fourth grade math, which has negative emotional consequences potentially, but also it's just not as good for learning. But I think sort of stepping back, the broader point you make is one that's really central to these discussions, which is it's easy to measure test scores. It's easy to say, okay, this is the share of kids who are proficient, and now this is the share that kids are the proficient. But that is only a very small part of the impacts that we're likely to see as a result of the disrupted education and the pandemic in general for kids. And it would be a mistake to focus on it and think, okay, well, if we can fix this problem, then everything will be great, particularly given what we see from teachers about socio-emotional development, about students' experiences, their overall engagement with school. So those are in many ways harder problems, but I really hope that we can try to make some progress on them as well. How can people find out more about the work you're doing? 
So the easiest place to find me is Parent Data on Substack. That's where I write my newsletters, but also where you can find my books and other things. So it's emilyostra.substack.com or just Parent Data. You can search it. Emily, before we go, just one more question. What's one thing that parents and educators can do today to make tomorrow a more promising place for every learner? Recognizing diversity across learning seems like the key to me that especially as we come into this era where people had different experiences during the pandemic and where kids uh, had different experiences at home, just recognizing that different kids are going to need different things and that the school systems and parents are going to need to figure out how to adapt to that. I think seeing that that's something we need to deal with is probably a big piece of trying to solve it. Thanks again to Emily Oster, a professor of economics at Brown and the author of several books, including Crib Sheet, Expecting Better, and The Family Firm, a data-driven guide to better decision-making in the early school years. Remaking Tomorrow is powered by Remake Learning. Learn more at remakelearning.org. Remaking Tomorrow.